You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. See, that's what the airlines would do. They would double check to make sure the microphone (laughs) is on. Microphone on, check. In one airline, <clears throat> after every flight, the pilots fill out what is affectionately called the gripe form. It is when the mechan- uh, it's a form they fill out to, dis- to uh, tell the mechanics the problems on the aircraft. Uh, the mechanics correct the problems, put in the solutions to their, their, what they did on the gripe form, they return that form back to the pilots, and the pilots check it before they take off on their next flight. And never let it be said that ground crews lack a sense of humor. Here are some actual maintenance problems submitted by the pilots and actual solutions recorded on the gripe form by the maintenance crews. Problem. Left inside main tire almost needs replacement. Solution. Almost replaced left inside main tire. (laughs) Problem. Something loose in cockpit. Solution. Something tightened in cockpit. Problem, dead bugs on windshield. Solution, live bugs on back order. (laughs) Problem, evidence of leak on right main landing gear. Solution, evidence removed. (laughs) Problem, friction locks cause throttle levers to stick. Solution, that's what friction locks are for. (laughs) Problem. IFF, inoperative and off mode. Solution. You guys already know what the answer is. Solution. It's always inoperative and off mode. Okay, it gives you a lot of confidence in the pilots, doesn't it? Problem. Number three, engine missing. Solution. Engine found on right wing after brief search. Problem. The aircraft handles funny. Solution, aircraft warned, straighten up, fly right, and be serious. (laughs) Problem, target radar hums. Solution, reprogram target radar with lyrics. Problem, mouse in cockpit. Solution, cat installed. Problem, noise coming from under the instrument panel. Sounds like a midget pounding on something with a hammer. Solution, took hammer away from midget. (laughs) And the last one, which is my personal favorite, okay? Problem, test flight okay, except auto land very rough. Solution, auto land not installed on this aircraft. (laughs) Problems in need of solutions. The world is filled with problems in need of solutions. Our personal lives are filled with problems in need of solutions. This past week, two events happened that rocked the world. The first one was the terrorist bombing in Brussels that killed over 30 people and hundreds of others were wounded. Unfortunately, events like this are becoming so common they no longer shock us or cause a response of outrage. The second event happened in the Curtis household. 
Um, Monica and I were in a conversation, and something that she said I misunderstood, so I defensively lashed back with cutting words. Unfortunately, like acts of terror, relational conflict are so common, they do not shock us anymore and cause the response of outrage. Okay, my snapping at Monica did not rock the world. But it rocked our world. It rocked our world because it reminded us that anger and evil don't just reside in the hearts of terrorists. They reside in our hearts too. Problems need solutions. A terrorist attack and my cutting words both stem from the same ultimate problem. And they both need the same ultimate answer. We're going to look at a passage today that describes five of those problems and gives the five of those answers. And ultimately, it's one problem with one answer. Will you stand with me as we read Romans 5, verses 18 through 6, 4? We stand not simply as a tradition, but simply as a respect of God's Word. As we read God's Word, we believe it's God's Word to us here today. So we are going to read. It's going to be up on the screen. And if you want to follow along, somebody's going to read Romans 5, 18 through 6, 4. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ and through faith in Christ we can approach you with both freedom and confidence. And it is in that freedom and confidence that we humbly and dependently ask that your Holy Spirit will open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and especially our hearts to receive your word to us on this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The terrorist attacks and my cutting words both stem from the same ultimate problem. And that problem is sin. Sin. What, what is sin? Before we move on too quickly, let's take some time to say, what is it when we use the word sin? What is it that we mean? Often we think of doing things that we should not do. That's sin, like blowing people up, or lashing out in anger. And that's true. Those are acts of sin. Or we might think of the opposite. It's sin is not doing the things we should do, like doing acts of kindness, or loving people and caring for people. But on a more fundamental level, sin is more than these. It's more rudimentary than that. In, in the words of John Piper, sin is dishonoring God by preferring other things over Him and acting on those preferences. So Piper is saying... Sin, hear what he says, sin is dishonoring God by preferring other things other than him and then acting on those preferences. In other words, 
Sin is our rebellion against God and substituting ourselves as our own functional gods and then acting selfishly, acting selfishly. The terrorist attacks and my cutting words both stem from the same ultimate problem, sin. And they both need the same ultimate answer, and that is the gospel. Again, just like sin, what do we mean by the word gospel? Another word we throw around a lot, use a lot, and we should in a church. What is the gospel? What do we mean by that? Well, the gospel is the good news that even though we dishonor God by preferring other things other than Him and then act selfishly, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we're still in this condition of selfishness, He sent His only Son to be a part of the broken and dysfunctional humanity that makes us up in order that Jesus could live a life completely submitted to the Father even to the point of substituting himself to receive the punishment we deserve because of our rebellious attitudes and actions. The epicenter, the core of the gospel. Paul calls it that thing of first importance, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the heart of the of the gospel. And as a result, those who respond to the gospel message in repentance and faith, they have freely received forgiveness for their selfishness and acting that way and being that way, including the removal of guilt and shame. And they are provided with a new life that in Christ they have acceptance, security, and significance. That's a summary of the gospel. This gospel is the solution for our sin. This gospel is a solution for our selfishness and the hurts we experience from other people's selfishness. In the passage we're going to look at right now, Paul lists five problems of sin and provides corresponding gospel solutions. And we're going to move through this fairly quickly. We're going to go verse by verse. So first, verse 18, if you can put verse 18 up there. We notice in the first part of this verse we see the problem. The problem. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of men. That's the problem. Because of our sin, all people are condemned before a holy and just God. He is, he is, in His perfect justice, God cannot overlook our rebellious hearts or our selfish acts. The Bible says that the wages, what we earn, what we deserve for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But Paul, in the same verse, provides the answer, the solution to that problem. Look at the second half. So, an act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the answer to that problem. Because of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, all people have the opportunity to have that condemnation, that judgment removed. Just as the Bible says, that same verse that says, for the wages of sin is death, that same verse finishes, says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 19, we get another problem and solution. Verse 19, we see this. For, now he's unpacking the previous problem a little more detail. For, because, as, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the problem. In one man's disobedience. Now he doesn't, in this, our passage right now, he doesn't name that one man, but in the greater context of it, he does. That man is Adam. And when Adam sinned in the garden... And, and he's saying, as humanity's initial representative, when Adam sinned, it was transferred to all his offspring. All people after that became sinners. That's what the Bible tells us. Our passage today tells us that explicitly. 
What is transferred is both the guilt of his disobedience, but also the innate desire for us to be disobedient. But that, passage, that verse also provides the solution. Look at the second half of that verse. So, by one man's obedience, the many will made righteous. One man's obedience. Who's that one man? Again, in the context, we know he's talking about Jesus. Jesus' life and death of perfect obedience to the Father. Just like Adam was the initial representative of humankind, Jesus, because he was perfect and the Son of God, was the ultimate representative of humanity. And Jesus' obedience and corresponding righteousness can be transferred to all people who respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. And we'll talk about faith in a few minutes. Now, uh, what is transferred to us is both the freedom from guilt and the innate desire to be obedient to God. That's what we get from Jesus. Now, I initially, when I learned this many years ago, felt that this was unfair. And maybe you feel the original sin. That, that Adam's sin and it's transferred. The guilt and the propensity to the sin is transferred to us. And that's not fair. Listen, if we were in the garden, we probably would have done a whole lot better, right? Okay? But the Scripture explains that now that's what happened. And I initially response was, that's not fair. I, why should I inherit a characteristic of him that it wasn't my fault that it happens? And yet I sin today because of that. Anybody else have trouble with that sometimes? <laughs> Our verse tells us, there's a number of answers to that, but our verse tells us one primary one. If we are not willing to accept that Adam's sin was transferred to us, then we are also unable to accept that Jesus' righteousness is transferred to us. You can't have one without the other. And you don't get to take the righteousness and leave away the sin. So when we refuse that, no, 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 that's not true, I don't think that's correct then we turn around and have to say the same thing for the cross. When Jesus died, he died for himself and has no value to us. That's the gospel answer to that struggle. We need to move on. Problem, verse 20. Problem. Now the law came to increase the trespass. The Bible tells us that God gave the law, it's called the law, and think Ten Commandments if you want to. There's a lot of other laws, but think Ten Commandments for a number of different reasons. We're only going to highlight one here. This verse highlights one. A primary one is that so people actually, through the law, through the commands, become more aware of their rebelliousness and their disobedient hearts. The law saying, hey, don't do this and do this, we become more acutely aware of how sinful we really are. Paul, even a little later in the book of Romans, the book we're looking at now, says, for I I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Hear what he's saying? I I didn't worry about coveting until I was told not to do it. And then I coveted it all sorts of ways. How many of you in here are parents? You're starting to laugh already. You're talking about original sin and you guys are laughing, okay? Okay. I'm a father of four children, grandfather of 15 What I'm about to describe, I have experienced in a number of settings in a number of ways. You're a parent. And let's say you're in the kitchen with a young child. And let's pretend this podium is the stove. And the parent says to the child, do not touch the stove or you will get burned. That child does what? The child, no, no, the child looks you in the eyes. And they casually, very nonchalantly, raise their hand and touch the stove. 
Has this only happened in the Curtis household? I don't think so. You want proof of original sin? Boom! Case closed. The command, don't do that, or do this, stills in us our hearts that we really don't want to. We want to be selfish. And that's what the law did. That's a problem. There's a solution. There's a solution here in the second half of the verse. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The, the more we become aware of our depth and pervasiveness of the sin in our, our hearts and our actions, the more we come to understand and appreciate the generous and sufficiency of God's grace to us. The more we grow in that. Grace, that's another word. That's defined grace. What do we mean by grace? Grace is God's goodness and favor to us, but it's more than that. It's not just his attitude towards us. Grace is God's help, his tangible help to those who actually deserve the opposite. They deserve punishment, but instead he gives them help because they can't help themselves. That's grace. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's like, it's like if I had, and as we grow in awareness of sin and we grow in awareness of grace, it changes us. It's, it's like if I had owed somebody 10 bucks and I needed to pay them right now, I didn't have the money, I'm in a, a problem here, somebody else comes in and says, here, I'll pay the 10 buck debt for you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. But if I come and I'm aware that I owe $100,000 in debt and it's due now and I don't have $100,000, but somebody comes along and pays that debt, I'm going to say more than thank you very much. Okay, which one am I going to appreciate the generosity more, the 10 bucks or the $100,000? And that's what Paul is saying. When we become more and more aware of the sin in our life, we become more and more aware of the grace of God in our life. It abounds, it overflows to us we become more and more appreciative. We become more and more thankful for what God's doing in our life. Problem, verse 21. So that, as sin reigned in death, that's a problem. Death is a problem. Death is a problem. The control of sin leads to death. Physical death and eternal death. The Scripture clearly tells us. The impending deaths of all of us is an ever-present reminder that we are not as much control of our lives as we think we are. Right? We all, a reality of death shakes that. But Paul gives a solution. He gives a solution in that same verse. Grace also might reign righteousness leading to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The abundance and control of grace now the abundance and control of grace, which is found only in Jesus Christ, leads to removal of guilt, removal of shame, and the gift of eternal life. And this gift of eternal life is not just that we live forever. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also that it includes restored relationships with God and other people now as part of eternal life. This past, a week ago, Monica and I were in vacation in... North Carolina, visiting our oldest son and his family. And we flew back on a Boeing 737. 737 is an average plane. It seats about 150 people. It flies at about a uh, cruising speed of about 485 miles per hour and at a height of a uh, cruising altitude of around 35,000 feet. During the flight, I would guess that I was probably the only person on that plane thinking about the Wright brothers. Wilbur, Wilbur and Orville Wright. 
Earlier in this year, I had read the biography by David McCullough of the Wright brothers and their quest for flight, and I was very impressed by their perseverance and their dedication to do this, these two high school-age guys who went head-to-head with the Smithsonian Institute. Smithsonian spent $70,000 in 1903. That's a lot of money. The Wright brothers spent a couple thousand dollars over the course of quite a few years. They were the first to fly. And you know what really gets it? Nobody believed them. Nobody believed them. They were telling everybody, we don't believe you. You guys can't fly. I was very impressed by that. But on December 17, 1903, Oval Wright, Orville piloted the first powered airplane 20 feet above the sand at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The flight lasted a grand total of 12 seconds and covered 120 feet. Three more flights were made that day with Wilbur, his brother, piloting the record flight lasting 59 seconds and covered a distance of 852 feet. That's it. This flight launched what would become, we know, as the commercial airline industry, the military air power, and even space travel. This simple event by them. And I'm sure that a vast majority of people do not think about this historic event when they're flying on an airplane. They may acknowledge that it was an interesting historical event that they learned about back in elementary school, like I did originally, but it's disconnected from that event, it's disconnected from their lives now uh, when they're flying in an airplane. Would you agree with me? In a similar way, I think Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection are often viewed as interesting historical events. But practically, there's little connection between what happened back then and our lives now, even with dealing with the very problems of our lives. Even Christians do not rightly leverage the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus in ways that enables them to experience the victory over sin. How do I know that? Because that's the next problem that Paul addresses in our passage. Look at me at chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, What shall shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If, if, If we, the more we sin, the more we get grace, what's the problem? Well, let's just keep on sinning. We get more grace. The more we rack up a debt and somebody pays it off, why wouldn't you run with that, is what he's saying. Some people intentionally rationalize the sin in their life in this way, but I think most people just slip into this way of thinking through their ignoring the truth and ramifications of the gospel. Paul provides us in verse 2, 3, and 4 the solution to this dilemma. In verse 2, he, he starts off, he says, here's the solution, by no means, no, How can we who died to sin still live in it? If the guilt and the control of sin has been put to death, why would we continue submitting to its destructive power? It doesn't make sense, is his first point. And then he goes on in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus. What's that? Well, we're going to have in a few minutes some baptisms, and part of a baptism's It's a ceremony. It's a Christian ceremony. Other cultures, other religions baptize, but we baptize for very specific reasons, initiated by Christ. A ceremony where someone who newly believes in the gospel and responded is lowered into water, usually a body of water. We have a tank of water behind there, uh, or it could be a stream or body, but usually it's a place where they can be submerged all the way underneath the water. 
and they're lowered into the water, completely submerged, and then somebody else, they don't stand up, somebody else has to pull them out, up, out of the water. And how it's done is important. Being underwater is symbolic of being dead. And in a sense, those of you who are being baptized today, you can plug your ears, okay? In a sense, you are dead. You cannot survive underwater. You cannot go and hold you. If we decide that Josh gets grumpy and holds you underwater, you will know that, okay? Okay? We have, we have a couple lifeguards available, so don't worry about it. We've, it's only happened a couple times. But being pulled out of the water, somebody else does the pulling, representing God, by the glory of God, raising them from the dead, so they come out with newness of life. They're completely submerged as in a grave. They come out. This is what it is. And, and the coming out of the water, they're being resurrected to new life, as in Jesus was. So Paul says, Paul's answer to, well, why shouldn't we just keep on sinning, was, you were baptized. He's talking to Christians here. You were baptized. Baptism into Christ, Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Baptism demonstrates our union with Christ's death. When Jesus died, he, he died our death. Uh, we are united. United means joined, connected with him spiritually in his death, and his death becomes our death. And we see more. Verse 4. He has another dimension to this, unpacking the meaning of of baptism even farther. So why should we not continue to sin? Verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, in him in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Baptism also demonstrates our union with Christ in his resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we too were raised from the dead. Christ's victory over sin is now our victory over sin and death. This union, this victory is ours, not automatically. It doesn't apply to everybody equally all the time. And what I mean by that is it must be acquired through faith. Now, Paul in this Romans 6 passage doesn't say that explicitly, but in other parts where he does talk about the exact same thing, like in the book of Colossians, He does explicitly say that. For example, in Colossians 2.12, he says this. He's talking about the same kind of thing. Having been buried with him, Jesus, in baptism, in which you once were, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So our connection, the thing that makes, applies that resurrection to our resurrection is that we have faith. We believe that Christ, when he was raised from the dead, they I was raised from the dead too. Now faith is another one of those words that we need to be clear about what we need. Faith is not simply mental assent that something's true. It's not just believing something to be right or factually correct. For example, I could look at a 737 plane and say, yep, I believe that plane can fly from here to New York City. It's a, it's a fact, I trust, that's going to happen. That's not faith. That's mental assent. Faith is a personal, confident trust that is expressed through actions demonstrating what I believe to be true. So in the illustration, faith would be what? Getting on the plane and flying to New York City. That's faith. And it's the same with the gospel message. It's not saying it's just true. It's saying it's true for me. 
and I'm going to live, I'm going to act and live differently because it's true for me. That's the faith Paul's talking about. Look in that verse 4, he still says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We too. We also. We in the same way can walk this way. This newness of life is a life of faith. It's a day-to-day personal, confident trust that God is working is working for us, he's working in us, he's working through us because of our union, our joining with Christ. This new spiritual reality is supposed to change our perspective and our problems and the way we, our motivation is that we should live differently. So, for example, if our life of sin, we describe our life of sin as preferring other things over God and acting on those preferences, then our new life in Christ would be the exact opposite of that. Here, now, as we live. Walking in newness of life is the opposite. It is, re- it is preferring God over everything else and acting on that preference. You see the difference? The 180 degrees difference. That's the new life we have. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, in my body here on earth, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why look at this passage on Easter? Why do baptisms on Easter? This passage and the baptism it talks about helps us to understand that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not simply, not just, a historical event of the distant past that we can celebrate. It is an important reality. It is meant to be an important reality of our lives now. The epicenter, the core of the gospel, what Paul calls of first importance, as we've already seen, is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God demonstrated his love for us, for you and for me, in that while we, were still, while we still preferred other things other than God, and acted on those preferences, Christ died for us. Do you believe that Christ died for you? If not, why not? Baptism is an important step of obedience for the person who responded to the gospel message. And in one of the earliest sermons we have by the Apostle Peter, he, was on, he, he gives this big, big crowd, he gives a message about how Christ died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. And we were told in Acts chapter 2 that people were cut to the heart. They knew he was, he was correct. And they said, brothers, what must we do? That was their response to his message of preaching the gospel. And this is what Peter said to them. He said, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Easter is a once-a-year celebration. It's an important Christian celebration. But the reality of our union with Christ in His death and resurrection is intended to be a daily reality. This next week, there, be, there may be more horrific acts of terrorism. Or you may personally dish out or receive some harsh words. The Bible is clear about in both cases. The ultimate problem is sin, and the ultimate solution is the gospel.
Paul reminds us of that. And Paul wants us to know that. And he knows how fickle and short-memoried we are. Jesus did, too. Therefore, Jesus established communion. In the communion, Jesus wants us to remember, every time we gathered as a body, he wants us to remember his death and resurrection. That we know not only that he died for our sins, but he also raised to life. And as Paul said in our passage, that we too might walk in newness of life. If you are a Christian, if you uh, profess the name of Christ, if you have responded to the gospel message that Christ died for your sins in repentance and faith, whether or not you normally come to Red Sea, it's not the important part, but it's important that you've responded to the gospel, we invite you, as they start playing music, to take communion. There's a table over here. There's a table over there. There's some flat bread up there and some wine or juice, whatever you prefer. And if you're gluten-free, there's options for that too. You just go up, remind yourself that Christ died for your sins and and that we too can walk in newness of life. Whether you go with your family or group, by yourself, it doesn't make a difference. Whatever's best for you. Break off a piece of the bread and dip it in the liquid that you prefer and take it, giving thanks to God for what he's generously given to us for Christ. And every week we celebrate Easter in two ways. We take communion and we, we don't worship on the Sabbath. We worship on the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose from the dead. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your generosity to us in Christ. We thank you that in Christ and through faith in Christ we can approach you with both freedom and confidence. And it's in your, this freedom and confidence that we started this message and it's in this freedom and confidence we close this message. And we just thank you for your generosity. In your name we pray. Amen. A couple quick things. If you have children and want to have them come up to the baptism, please go down and get them. Bring them up. The rest of you, as they start playing a couple songs, you're welcome to take communion. And after the service, if you, after we're done with the baptism and singing, if you would like somebody to pray for you, for whatever reason, we have some people available. Myself, Josh, and Doug. Doug, raise your hand. Higher. There you go. Doug here will be in the back over on this side. And you're welcome. Just go up to him. And Doug would love to pray for you. So let's continue our time of worship. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.